Feeling blue, what do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month, that time of the month. Need a fix? Come get your kicks. We got tales by kooky chicks, that time of the month, that time of the month. Hello and welcome to that time of the month. My name is Melanie Bear. I'm so happy that you're all here um, tonight, and we, we took two months off, and I was supposed to be putting together a book from the show, and I realized I had an eight-month-old baby, and that was never going to happen. Um, so we're going to hold off on the book for now. That was a nice little break, though, for me, and I'm so glad you're all back. We have such a talented uh, group behind me of writers. Um, the theme for this month is My Summer Vacations. And um, I was trying to think of, you know, what comes to mind when I think of my summer vacation. I don't know about you guys. We did a lot of traveling around in the minivan. Um, and my, my mom is here tonight. Give her a big round of applause for taking your money. She was very nervous about this job I gave her. Um, but they are so sweet. My, actually, my sister just came with my two nephews, and my, my parents were here. And so there were my two nephews who are four years old, two years old. I have a nine-month-old baby, and my parents rented, of course, a minivan so that we could recreate all of our traumatic family vacation memories. Um, and it was, it was very fun, but a little traumatic with the three little kids all screaming for different reasons. Um, but it was great. My, my, they're from Southern California, and my nephews were like, well, especially the four-year-old was so taken with the Civil War that my sister just texted me a picture of there back in Southern California, like on the beach, um, recreating the um, Carnation Plantation uh, Cemetery with like rocks <laughs> in the sand. <laughs> um, so very taken. Chris is also a Civil War buff. I mean, he gave me. I actually asked him. I'm like, do you know of any of those Civil War um, reenactments and? He's like, first of all, they're called, what are they called? Historical interpreters. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Like, cause, uh, right when you said that, I'm like, I'm not bringing my four-year-old nephew to that. Because they for sure would probably get, probably get shot down. Um, <laughs> where do these all take place? And It's like a secret society. Because he gave me some guy's number that I had to call. And it was like... Did he ever talk to you? We, we exchanged some emails and I was totally intimidated. <laughs> so I don't want to say anything offensive. So I just let it drop. Um, my, but my nephew, they did go... Because I'd taken my parents on the carnation. What am I calling it? I'm calling it carnation instant breakfast. Um, the carnation <laughs> plantation. We went with my parents, and it's a really long tour. I don't know if you guys have been on it. It's like over an hour of just talking. And uh, so my four year old nephew went, and he just kept asking the lady, because of course we had told them beforehand, like, there's blood from the Civil War on the floorboards. So he just, every room they went in, he's like, where's the blood? Um, so he was not taking it as serious as I think they would have liked. Let's give a big round of applause, though, for all of our wonderful people who have written stories uh, for tonight. It's really a, I promise you're talking for a good reason. They're wonderful. Um, I think we're ready to kick it off with our first story. Um, Eileen Norman has a degree in psychology, and she's been 
a consultant on the Myers-Briggs type indicator, giving workshops on how personality types relate to teaching, relationships, spirituality, management issues. Um, she said she actually started doing this with couples and co uh, talked to several couples out of getting married. Um, <laughs> thank you. Are you guys one of those? We've we been lifelong friends ever since. Um, people are darn. Uh, <laughs> she has a blog titled Laughter, Carbonated Grace, and she has um, some cards up there in case you forget what that was, um, where you can grab it afterwards. And she's been married to her architect husband for over 35 years. They have, oh, what did I just say? Oh my God, 55 years. <laughs> Holy moly. Wow. Oh my goodness. Congratulations for that. Okay. I'm from California. You know, 35 was impressive. Um, so, wow. Wonderful. 55 years, thank you. They have five children. I know two of them are here tonight. Um, 11 grandchildren, there's a couple of them here. And seven great-grandchildren. Wow. Sorry, Mom. I have like a couple. But, <laughs> anyways, please welcome to the stage for the first time, Eileen Norman. not sure if I'm the warm-up or if I got to go uh, because I was the oldest. <laughs> but, um, my particular piece tonight is part of a series of posts that on my blog called Gifts of Age. Don't laugh, you with gray hair. Uh, and they, my, my posts come with an age-rated warning. Anyone under 70 may find this material disturbing. <laughs> So it's all right with me if uh, it gets disturbing to you younger people. You can go, Jesus loves me. This Close it out. Blank it out. It's okay. Anyway, this first, this one is called, Nobody Came Home in, in an Urn. <laughs> one of the more positive aspects of reaching retirement age is the opportunity to travel. However, since the airport security people have to spend 20 minutes patting down my husband because of his pacemaker, and going through 20 minutes going through my wheelchair, and then two others are going through our sleep apnea machines, <laughs> the personnel begin to kind of sneer, smile, whatever. Like, why don't people like you just stay home? I'm not sure what terrorist profile we match, but you are definitely safe from us. We are blessed with a wonderful family, four sons and a daughter, and we are also blessed because one of them is an unmarried son who worked for 17 years with an airline. As his parents, we not only got to fly free, but that same son was willing to travel with us and drive the rental cars, which is a great protection for life and limb. Uh, in countries such as England and Ireland, having a younger driver with quick reflexes and the memory to remember that you're driving on the left side of the road <laughs> saved our lives several times. My husband and I found this out when one day we attempted to drive in Ireland all on our own. 
I'll never forget the look of stark terror on that poor Irish man's face as we came shooting out of a roundabout and turned into the right lane, which was the wrong lane. <laughs> Panic in the streets. The three of us, however, have very diverse interests. My architect husband loves spending hours and hours and hours <laughs> climbing ruins of castles and figuring out what they once were. I'm more into art museums, sidewalk cafes, a cathedral or two. And my son's favorites are, you guessed it, pubs and bistros. <laughs> After a day of driving through France's Loire Valley, which has more castles and palaces per square mile than Tennessee, Middle Tennessee has guitars, <laughs> we began to get whiplash each time we spotted another one and cried, oh, that one looks interesting, and our son floored the accelerator and searched for a bistro. Back in our youthful 60s, we each took only a small, I, I'm disappearing, <laughs> no such luck. Uh, a small rolling suitcase and a backpack for 11 days abroad. This meant we could take it all as carry-ons and not risk losing the luggage. Now in our 70s, we need an extra suitcase for the medicines, heating pads, sleep apnea machines, current converters, and outlet adapters. Now the upside of my wheelchair, which I've had to use for some years, not now, luckily, is that we customized it to carry me and all the luggage. <laughs> of course, we look a lot like a traveling circus act. One advantage of being over 70, who cares? <laughs> One small warning, though, to any other wheelchair travelers, all those lovely little bridges in Venice, they are actually stairs all but every two blocks to get anywhere. My suggestion for Venice would be a wheelchair with pontoons and a paddle. <laughs> Traveling late in life has given me a new twist on that old joke. Remember, what do you call someone who only speaks one language, an American? Well, my twist is what do you call someone who can say, where is the bathroom in six languages? <laughs> Any woman over 60 who travels. <laughs> I'm currently creating a coffee table book, uh, photos of my poor husband waiting patiently outside Luz, El Banos, El Gabinitos, by Zimmer around the world. And then including a warning about the salle domains in France that are ecumenical. What are the French thinking? A nation that pees together stays together? <laughs> I remember many, many years ago in my callow youth, callously laughing when hearing about two young men on one of those farcical 30-minute tours of the Louvre, getting on either side of an elderly woman and literally hauling her like baggage as they group raced from the winged victory to the Mona Lisa. That's not quite as funny to me now. However, I do try to bring a bit of lightheartedness into having to use a wheelchair in countries with little or no accessibility. When I have to stand up 
and struggle up long sets of stairs, I sing out, I'm healed, I'm healed. <laughs> Since I've never been compulsive about seeing every single thing there is to see, I don't mind sitting in a sidewalk cafe while my husband and son are climbing castle ruins that are an impossible challenge for a wheelchair. And being a devout coward, I declined my son's suggestion that we ask if there was a catapult. <laughs> Besides, I have some memories of the time my husband and son, energized by several beers, attempted to run while pushing me up Mont St. Michel over large cobblestones. We threw a wheel halfway up. I decided then that the view from the bottom is just as interesting and as tasty as it at the top. Now one surprising experience, a travel experience, was sitting in a row of white-haired, rosy-cheeked little British Miss Marples in the theater at Stratford-on-Avon. I was the only little old lady to gasp out loud at sudden full frontal male <laughs> The English must be at least a verbally reticent race. Either that or the Miss Marbles had been coming every day since the show. <laughs> there was another experience that's funny now, but not so much at the time. <laughs> We stay mostly in clean but literally ancient B&Bs or small hotels that have lots of atmosphere but limited plumbing. Once at 3 in the morning in Vienna, I spent 15 terra-filled minutes locked in a tiny bathroom in a very dark hall listening to heavy breathing sounds outside my door. When I finally worked up the courage to open the door, fully prepared to scream at the top of my lungs, it turned out to be my husband's snores echoing out the door I'd left open. <laughs> I confess, planning trips seems a tad less fun now because we have to choose the countries we visit by the quality of their medical facilities. <laughs> if you're smart, you will. <laughs> and shopping for insurance that will fly us home on life support conjures up some fairly daunting scenarios. Several years ago, just my husband was planning to visit another of our sons while he was staying in London for a month. Since I do most of the practical preparations for our trips, and unfortunately I've reached the age where funerals are a large part of my social life, I checked out the pros and cons of return by urn rather than casket. <laughs> you have to get real. <laughs> Nobody wants to, but somebody's got to. When I suggested to my son that should the need arise, that he bring dad home in an urn. <laughs> he responded with great outrage. That's a horrible thing to say. Why are you being so morbid? I decided right then to make the trip with my husband, figuring one of us would survive to deal with any morbid problems. When we both returned sans urn, 
from what felt like one of the best trips of many years of traveling, I began to wonder, what made it such a wonderful trip? That's when I realized there's an upside to imagining worst-case possibilities. <laughs> this particular trip seemed so delightful, at least partly from sheer relief that nobody came home in a son that took you there? Is he here tonight? Or is that a different son? Okay. My mom's going to need to talk to you after. They're going on a trip to uh, <laughs> they're going on a trip to Ireland um, and she's very stressed out about it because um, they're both very bad with directions. Well, mainly my dad. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's a good strategy though, mom, is to just, worst case scenario, just, you know, keep your expectations really low and I uh, should do just fine, right? Wonderful. Okay. Well, let's keep this show going. Um, our next storyteller, um, she originally did the show when we were back at Bongo Java, and I loved her writing, and uh, we invited her back to do our one-year anniversary show, um, but she emailed me and said that uh, she was due, I think, like that day um, with her second child. Yeah, she's like 17 months pregnant. And I was like, just come anyways. You know, and now I understand what that entails. Um, but I have always wanted to have her back um, on stage, and uh, so we finally have her back. It's been like, what, a year and a half since? Yeah. So she's finally back. I guess that's at the point when you can actually do stuff again, so I will take note of that. Um, but she has a fantastic piece tonight, and she's a writer, um, blogger, mother of two. Please welcome Amanda Robinson. I do this so other people have to hang out with my kids. Okay, I call this story Snacks on a Plane. I love airplanes. Um, and I had my parents to thank for that. I was really lucky when I was a kid. My parents made sure that I had like a built-in summer vacation every year by getting divorced when I was four. <laughs> so generous, I know. Thanks, Mom and Dad. So throughout the 80s and 90s, I spent a portion of my summer break flying unaccompanied across the country to see my father. And I took great pride in this adventure. It wasn't just me. There were many young denizens of the air throughout the summer months. <laughs> At least it seemed like a lot. It was definitely all of my friends. I could not be seen socializing with all you weirdos with your intact nuclear families, okay? <laughs> Show-offs. So every year at the end of June, no matter how my life changed, a new school, a new dad, the despair over the cancellation of my so-called life, <laughs> still hurts, um, every year I was bound for a two- to three-week sabbatical in sunny Rochester, New York. Since I devote, I know, exotic. Since I devoted two days every summer to air travel, I felt like a professional, obviously. Uh, it might not seem like much time to us now, but when you're young, you know, you're still able to live in the moment, so everything, time just really stands still for you. I decided to do this in a six-point font, so I had no idea what I'm saying. 
birthday parties when you're a kid seem to last forever, right? Especially the good ones where you hear those phrases for the very first time, like Red Rover, Red Rover, send Amanda, or whatever your name is, right over. And you just know somehow that you're connecting yourself to every child throughout history. <laughs> Meanwhile, while you're having this vision quest with your friends, the adults are sitting somewhere awkwardly in chairs making small talk because those things actually last about two hours. And when you grow up, you're dead inside to that kind of fun. But... <laughs> But in that time warp of youth, my two days at the airport made me the premier expert in my field. And everyone treated me like I owned the place, right? Because they have to when you're six and flying alone. But when you're an only child, like most, most of humanity throughout a lot of human history, we feel like the universe is surrounding us, right? And we see evidence of it everywhere. So when a nice lady in a uniform took me onto the plane before anyone else was allowed to get on and presented me with peanuts and a Coke, I knew that this was the place for me. <laughs> there were often a few other kids brought onto the plane early with me, um, and while we waited for the general population, of course, like any self-respecting seven, eight, nine-year-old does, we sized each other up. Who's traveling farthest? Who was the youngest to fly alone? Who would be brave enough to ask to see the cockpit this time? No matter what the answers were, I always felt that I was sitting closest to the front of the plane. This was pretty obvious whose trip was most important. <laughs> oh, there were also some elderly people in wheelchairs brought on earlier, too. But, you know, compared to us poor fatherless children, they were like oversized baggage. They got no snacks. They didn't get to meet the pilots. <laughs> Now, during my annual hiatus um, to New York with my father, I always spent a three-day mini-vacation with my grandmother, Mim. Now, Mim was the only sound that my 13-month-old mouth could manage when presented with Grandma, right? And since I only saw her once a year, there was never a transition to a more appropriate title. So as an adult, I still refer to her as my Mim. Fortunately, she's dead, so I don't have to say it very often. I know, I know, it's good. In her younger days, Mim was a travel guide for the Bluebird bus line, and I think accompanying my father to the airport to pick me up reminded her of her love for the travel world. And this is how she passed that on to me. Having just been in the airport a few days previous, she drove us straight back there for a full day of people watching. <laughs> we would get into the parking lot as close to the runway as she could pull the car, and we would sit, eating egg salad on rye, watching planes come and go. And we watched, and we wondered where they came from. Why would so many people fly to Rochester? Maybe there's some weird concentration of divorced dads here. <laughs> Maybe they're just stopping by on their way to Toronto. They are definitely not going to Niagara Falls. You should just fly into Buffalo for that. Eventually, we wandered into the airport to walk up and down terminals, stopping and sitting from time to time to watch a group deplane. And we pretended that this was the very plane that we had just seen land grandparents visiting for the summer, businessmen annoyed at being forced to share legroom with the summer part-timers, unaccompanied minors looking around shyly for a man they haven't seen in a year. It was especially fun to spot odd traveling companions. Do you see that old Indian man with the young rich couple? Who could he possibly be to them? Oh, maybe he's like their Mr. Belvedere. What? No, why would they bring him on vacation? He's got to be watching the house. Maybe he's some kind of special travel butler. Oh my God, is that a thing? Now, look at him, he's wearing shorts. You cannot let the travel butler wear shorts. We kept ourselves entertained like this literally for hours. 
you can't just wander around the airport like that anymore, of course. Uh, it's a much more anxious place, and anyone who does look relaxed is just a little suspicious. But this day back at the airport with Mim was the most relaxed I ever was during these vacations. You know, I think that we would have gotten along really well, my father and I, but the distance alone meant that I could never be quite comfortable with him. I could never be comfortable enough to tell him that I hated him or to throw shoes at the walls when I got grounded like I could with my mom and later Jeff, who in every other context, but this one is my dad. You know, I used to wonder if one big fight, right, would put us over to the edge to a real father-daughter relationship. Um, he made me a ham salad sandwich once, and I like egg salad and chicken salad, so I thought, it's probably going to be okay. It was not ham salad, no. And I wondered, after I took that first bite, what he would do if I just threw it down on the plate said, this is disgusting. And then maybe he would say, Amanda Jane, you eat that sandwich or we are not going to get ice cream. Or whatever the Yankee equivalent of a reprimand would be, right? <laughs> Maybe that, that could have been something, the start of something real between us. But I choked down enough of the sandwich to be polite, said thank you. And I was grateful later when the noise of the wind kept from, from hearing my teeth chattering in the New York summer breeze while we ate blackberry ice cream and walked up here on Lake Ontario. After two weeks of these ham salad moments, getting back to the airport was a relief. The wheelchairs and children board first, of course, and this is the best part of the trip. Out of pity, because I actually look lugubrious at the thought of leaving again and having these spaces between us grow even more, I get a pile of little peanut bags that will last me for weeks that I save until August to pack in my Punky Brewster lunchbox every single day so that I can tell my classmates over and over again how great my summer vacation was. My father never starred in the story so much as he haunted it. Instead of ham salad, I talk about peanuts. I talk about wheelchairs. And if I had been really lucky, the co-captain himself would have given me a peek into the cockpit and how many kids at the lunch table could boast such summer bliss. Thanks. Amanda Robinson. Give her a big round of applause. Yeah, I think jumped out of this. Yeah. I'm gonna go next. Just finished the story last night. My mom was babysitting, um, <laughs> so that's why I went in the middle so that I would be cushioned in case it goes terribly. I had my mom read it and help me with the editing. She said, it's not my funniest piece, but uh, but it's all right. But then she helped <laughs> But then she helped me punch it up. So don't worry, it got a little bit funnier. So thank you, Mom, babysitting and editing my stories and working the, the door here. Okay, so this is, um, this is called Honeymooning in Nam. We got married on a Sunday, moved across the country the following Saturday, and my husband started his big new job that Monday. Needless to say, the honeymoon had to be postponed. With all the excitement, we didn't have the usual amount of time to obsessively research online travel reviews. However, we did somehow find time to set up the Honey Fun site, basically asking friends to fork over cash. <laughs> As generous donations rolled in from friends and family far and wide, their feedback gave us the impression that our destination choice 
wouldn't have been their first one, or second, or third. I wondered if we had overlooked something when selecting Vietnam. <laughs> Simply put, one question posed on our wedding website asked, so you're honeymooning in Nam? <laughs> well, when you put it like that. But in actuality, this region of Southeast Asia is incredibly beautiful and unbelievably romantic. Or so they made it look on The Bachelor. <laughs> the part they never show on TV is the extensive travel time. After 20 plus hours of international travel, we arrived in the energetic city of Ho Chi Minh, formerly named Saigon. And by energetic, I mean it was as if the entire city had just snorted a gigantic speedball. <laughs> I'm primarily referring to the invasion of scooters that blanket the streets and threaten the lives of tourists each and every day. I now understand that's just par for the course. No visit to Vietnam is complete without experiencing a handful of near-death accidents by way of moped. Scooter encounters can be startling, though, especially being buzzed by while leisurely window shopping on the sidewalk. Assuming that sidewalks and crosswalks are safe zones was naively Western of me. I'd like to apologize to that moped rider in particular who I scared by screeching as he bobbed and weaved by me in that crosswalk. I'm sorry I nearly caused you to run over my ignorant American body. <laughs> I now see scooter drivers for who they really are. Two-wheeling ninja warriors, timing things ever so, and even while carrying multiple passengers. Although I was highly impressed with Vietnam's carpooling efforts, I'm not sure a family of four on a single scooter while carrying a sheet of glass is the answer either. <laughs> they have t-shirts with that. Um, another downside to picking a vacation destination on the fly is not fully taking into account uh, not fully taking into consideration weather. Traveling in June, we somehow managed to find the one place on Earth hotter and more humid than Nashville. <laughs> as you may imagine, air conditioning wasn't as readily available either. In most of our honeymoon pictures, we are beet red and drenched in sweat, which could be considered sexy, but that message never reached my libido. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Um, <laughs> My new husband and I would take turns saying, I love you, but do not touch me. <laughs> the weather was particularly atrocious during our stay in the city of Hue. As temperatures reach 105 degrees with 100% humidity, or so it felt, our bike ride around the ancient city center, rich in history from the Chinese dynasty days, quickly turned into a source of newlywed tension. I refused to get off the bike and take a closer look. If I stopped moving, so would the breeze, and I'd surely say something nasty that would prematurely end my marriage. <laughs> that afternoon in Hue was a far cry from the romantic private island excursions by helicopter that I remember seeing on The Bachelor. Another aspect of our honeymoon in Vietnam that didn't exactly scream romance was revisiting the Vietnam War. <laughs> In Ho Chi Minh, we toured the War Remnants Museum, where we came face-to-face -face, face -face with the disturbing effects of the war chemical Agent Orange. Literally, jars upon jars of disfigured unborn fetuses were on display, as well as life-size photos of crippled children. I hadn't prepared myself to sob uncontrollably on my honeymoon outside of Vietnam 
War Museum, or as they call it, the American War of Aggression. <laughs> I also momentarily forgot I was supposed to be a newlywed, lost in love, while crawling through the narrow underground Chuchi, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, tunnels used by the Vietnamese people to outmaneuver American troops. Emerging the other end, saturated in stench of people past and present. In visiting the prison, John McCain was held captive at for five and a half long years, and reading the communist version of his wretched stay that made it sound more like a trip to a bell-made country club <laughs> didn't make me want to rip off my panties either. <laughs> Thank you, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> One thing about Vietnam that not only met but exceeded our expectations was the cuisine, an undeniable art that combines elements of both Asian and French fare. Lightly fried crepes filled with chicken and vegetables and topped with endless fresh herbs was to die for. The dining atmosphere, however, left something to be desired. Slurping down delicious bowls of pho, while sitting atop milk crates on a dirty street corner, as live poultry pecked at our feet, <laughs> was a far cry from a candlelight dinner. It was difficult eating chicken while dining next to one. <laughs> but one particular dining experience took the phrase off the beaten path to a whole new level. So impressed with the quality of street food, we completely dropped our guard. Restaurant ratings were for amateurs. Famished after a long walk in a new town, we sat down at the first street stall. Against the backdrop of broken, a broken down car and piles of garbage, we told our hostess slash waiter slash chef slash restaurant owner to bring us her finest. With a smile on her face, the older Vietnamese woman presented us with two eggs perched on top perched on small, juice-sized glasses. Hmm. Cracking into the hard-boiled egg, it was a surprise, to say the least, when we got to the center and found it fully fertilized. A tiny bird lay lifeless. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> Terrified to find out what else was in store for us, we awkwardly dropped plenty of Vietnamese bills on the makeshift table and quickly excused ourselves. I guess we got our exotic experience. In an interesting, oh, sorry. Um, it's been an interesting exercise to write a story about your wonderful honeymoon and focus on the not so ideal aspects. At the time, none of this seemed so bad. I think that's testament of what an amazing companion I have by my side. After all, I realize life isn't gonna isn't gonna always lead down a path down a path to pristine white sand beaches and crystal clear waters. Sometimes we're going to step on broken pieces of glass, sometimes the waters are going to be murky, and sometimes the eggs are going to be fertilized. So. <laughs> I'll keep working on that. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. You know, she, she would just say, like, see something a little, like, crazier here, something about, like, sex. And then, uh, another part, something about sex. It's all sex in you and throw in. So, thank you, you're right. You're right. Um, okay, this next lady, I'm so thrilled that she wrote a story for the show because I saw, I was blown away. Um, I saw her at the Women's Theater, oh my god, 
Tennessee Women's Theater Projects, Woman Work. Okay, there's a lot of woman, a lot of woman stuff in that title. But she had this fantastic piece, and it's not just reading a story. There's visual elements, and she's acting things out. She's incredibly talented. Um, these folks here may know her, may recognize her. Um, she also, besides that, she's a senior at MTSU, studying theater and special education. Um, her most recent projects have been assistant directing the Amen Corner at MTSU, and is currently working as an assistant scenic designer to uh, let's see to NC for N NCT's upcoming production of The Outsiders. And I heard one of the most amazing things that you don't have on here is that you won the Tomato Festival. <laughs> a friend told me uh, with your piece, the one woman show about Jaws. So <laughs> we'll have to all try to. Is that on the, the internet or anything? No. No. Okay. <laughs> She'll be making it on the internet soon. Anyways, please welcome uh, Madeline Hicks for the first time. Um, I don't have a clever introduction or a title, so I'm just going to like dive right in. All right. I was born on November 27th of 1991. It was Thanksgiving weekend, and I've been thankful ever since. My entire existence is the result of a mistake starting with my conception. In the graceful words of my mother, you were one missed pill. <laughs> I'm thankful that she missed that pill, although I'm sure initially... She thought of lots of other, more colorful words to describe how she felt. <laughs> I'm thankful that I was born to two parents who see the world in different ways. My mother is an educator who spends her time nurturing and teaching people. My father is many things. He's a businessman, a writer of books and plays, an actor, but most importantly, he's an adventurer. As soon as I was able to talk and say a few words, I started going on adventures. I traveled the world with my family. We went to Africa, Spain, and Switzerland before I was old enough to realize that there is no P in the word hamster. Although, if we're being totally honest, I only made this discovery last year. So I spent the first 21 years of my life saying hamsters, and no one corrected me. My summers have always been reserved for new places and people, and last summer was my biggest adventure yet. It was the first time I traveled without my family. I knew that for my first trip alone, I would want to go somewhere small, close to home, and relatively low-key. So, I went to Norway and Denmark. <laughs> I went through a study abroad program at my school, and it was undoubtedly the most amazing and the most terrifying thing that I've ever done. See, I was born with this condition, and um, I've yet to discover if it's physical, mental, or emotional. All I know is that it's completely unheard of. Doctors don't have a name for it. No one else in the history of humankind has ever had it. And usually when I try to explain it to people, it's so far out of their frame of reference that they can't even begin to comprehend it. So I'll try to break it down as simply as I know how, but refrain from getting overwhelmed from all of the medical terminology. The condition that I have is this. I hate being wrong. <laughs> yeah. I have this fear of being wrong, and it transcends through every aspect of my life. I'm afraid of being wrong mentally. I've always had this passion for learning new things, but I hate when people are watching me learn. I feel that people will perceive me as weak or unintelligent. 
As a child, I was naturally inclined towards education, and so I coasted through the first few years of elementary school, but by the time I was eight or nine, things started to require more work, and I was so frustrated. I felt like if I didn't know something or instantly become proficient at it, that there was something wrong with me. I felt this disgust and inadequacy when I needed help or support from other people, even my teachers. I worry that my brain is wrong. I'm afraid of being wrong physically. This started when I was in first grade. I went to the public swimming pool and uh, I was wearing my bright yellow bikini and I thought that I looked so good. But this boy from my class came up to me and uttered the three words that no one wants to hear. You look fat. That's all he said. Literally, he never spoke to me again before or after that. I have this theory that he doesn't actually exist, but rather he crawled up from hell to break my self-esteem and then vanished moments later. I have an update on this part, though. I found out that he works the drive through at a Chick-fil-A, so I'm thinking that one night I'm going to show up, and when he's like, oh, how can I help you? What would you like? I'm just going to go, you're fat, and drive away. We'll see. I started thinking there was something wrong with my body when I was seven years old. This is not an unusual experience for little girls. I asked my male friends when they started to feel concerned about their physical appearance, and it wasn't until much later. I looked at my body, and I thought it was wrong. It took years and years to teach myself how to love my body, how to accept it, how to be thankful for it. This is my body. It moves, it climbs, it has a heart that beats. Most days now, I can love my body, but some days are still hard. I recently started a new job, and the dress code requires us to wear white button-up shirts with khaki pants. Um, I know exactly what combinations of clothing look good on my body, and that is not one. <laughs> I remember walking into the bathroom on my first day of work and thinking, Wow! It looks like whoever made me at the girl factory put the preteen boy top on the 45-year-old president of the book club bottom. <laughs> I worry that my body is wrong. I'm afraid of being wrong emotionally. If you've ever been the only one to laugh in a crowded theater, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever been on stage in a crowded theater trying to make other people laugh, you really know what I'm talking about. We as people are social animals, and we're constantly seeking the approval of others, and we want to know that the things we feel are shared and genuine. Whenever I discover good news or bad news, it doesn't feel real until I share it with someone I love. I want to know that other people care about the things I care about and feel the things I feel. I worry that my heart is wrong. So going on this journey to Norway and Denmark, it was challenging for me because I had to cope with constantly being wrong. I was wrong about which bus to take. I was wrong about where the hostel was. I was wrong about pronouncing words. I was wrong about how much cheese people in Europe eat. I was constantly wrong, and it was the most liberating experience of my life. After you let yourself be wrong and let yourself fail, you begin to accept it, and you stop fearing it. By the end of my trip, I would hop on a bus, and I wasn't worried about missing my stop, because if I did, I would just get off on the next one. I would pick up a map and figure it out. I was okay with being wrong. 
I was thankful for being wrong. Madeline Hicks, let her hear it. Very talented daughter. great being wrong. You're right. Um, but I, I'm actually never right. So um, <laughs> I actually took, uh, um, I was in Paris by myself and I was really proud of myself because I navigated the subway system and I had to like transfer like three different subways and I got to where I was supposed to be going and I was really proud. And then when I got up above ground, I realized I'd gone like two hours and I just went across the street. <laughs> um, so. That was my learning experience with traveling in Europe. Um, Yes, the stuff we go through as girls, it's crazy. Uh, I I worry already about my daughter, you know, before we came here. She's nine months old, and I don't want to give her, like, the wrong messages and stuff. And my mom and I were both getting ready, and she was kind of sitting, you know, she sat right by us. And my mom's putting curlers in her hair, and I'm straightening my hair. And I feel like she's like, which one is, you know, right? And then I have her playing with, like, all my old makeup, just the stuff that can't, like, open and everything, and she loves it. And then I'm like, oh, my God, this is, I probably should um, sanitize some of that stuff from college, but um, <laughs> messages. Oh, that was a beautiful piece, another fantastic piece. And these are her parents, her lovely parents here. These are her parents, Mom. Uh, things got very awkward. You missed it, sir. Uh, my mom thought that your wife and your son were married. So... <laughs> Uh, she's from Orange County, you know. She's one of those situations. So I'm sorry to the brother. Um, very cool. Okay, well, we have two more stories, but three more people. How does that work? Well, our final piece is going to be a tandem piece with Herman and Patsy Lawson. But our next piece, though, before that, is a very talented lady who's done the show a couple times now. Is this your third time? Yes. And um, this piece is a little something different, and I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, she is a writer and blogger, homeschooling mother of three. Please welcome Mandy Ray Jones. So, do we have any Seinfeld fans in the audience? Yeah. Hey, good. Uh, did you guys know that this is the 25th anniversary of the premiere of the Seinfeld pilot this month? How old does that make you feel? (laughs) Right? So I have a lot of Seinfeld references in my story. Basically, I just felt it was necessary to incorporate Seinfeld into the story in order to make this story a little less um, humiliating somehow for me. So um, if you don't get the Seinfeld references, I promise you'll still be able to comprehend the humiliation. I I swear, the Seinfeld references won't take away from that. (laughs) Okay. So it's called No Wedding for You, the summer I almost married a gorgeous hipster doofus. (laughs) It was 1997. Seinfeld was in its final season, and I was on Christmas break of my sophomore year in college. Blockbuster video. I made the mistake of asking the cute guy behind the counter for a price check on video games. After my purchase was complete, his co-worker asked if the cute guy could have my number. I don't know, can he? I responded, doing my best impression of Elaine Bennis. <laughs> the fact that he 
couldn't ask me for my number himself should have instantly told me that he wasn't sponge worthy. <laughs> Yet my vulnerability and his cuteness had me pointing out my number on the check I'd written. He called me the next day. Turns out Chris, and I didn't change his name because I'm not trying to protect anyone who's innocent because he's not innocent. <laughs> Chris was the older brother of a boy from my high school, which meant he was the guy I'd had a moment with a couple of years earlier when I was working at the local bookstore. I helped him find a book and he took my breath away. He asked his brother about me. His brother said, she's weird, stay away from her. <laughs> his response, she sounds perfect. Huh. Our first date was the day after Christmas. I was feeling pretty hungover after a wild night with tequila and my high school friends. So obviously, he took me back to his parents' house to introduce me to all of his extended family who were congregated for the holiday. They had a gift for me. They took our picture. We went to the Opryland Hotel. He was 24, an artist. He liked movies. He worked in Ireland as a graphic designer. He was still speaking in some strange combination of a British and Irish accent, describing things as gorgeous. <laughs> Do you ever suddenly get the sense that you're in an episode of Seinfeld, I asked? Yes, he responded. It was what you might call a whirlwind romance spending every moment we possibly could together, talking on the phone when we couldn't see one another. The distance between my hometown and college was only about an hour's drive, but we might as well have been on the opposite ends of the earth, because that's how it is when you're in love. I didn't have a car, so Chris and my mom came every Friday after my last class to get me. When we saw one another, he started to run. When he reached me, he picked me up, spun me around, and said, Hello, gorgeous. For Valentine's Day, he organized a scavenger hunt at Blockbuster, where I had to follow movie quotes until I found a key, which opened up a back room where I found pants. Boldly printed pants he made on my mom's sewing machine. Soon we were talking long term. That summer we'd move in together. I could finish school while Chris found a job. We told our families the news. When you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible, he said, quoting when Harry met Sally to his mom and dad. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> Not wanting their son to live in sin with some girl, they suggested we get married. Chris proposed over the phone. He tracked me down at a local coffee shop where I was studying. The next thing I knew, we were planning a wedding. I found my perfect dress, we reserved the playground in our hometown for the ceremony and rented a room at the local recreational center for a reception. I'd go barefoot and my toenails would be my something blue. I'd walk down the aisle to the Ally McBeal theme song, surrounded by balloons. Awkward bridal showers commenced, awkward meals with families and friends, awkward misspelled wedding invitations handprinted at his college. Yada, yada, yada. I got a dream job working for the campus counseling office. He transferred near my school. We moved into Mary's student housing. We avoided peanut butter when we stocked up on groceries because he was allergic. We hung his artwork on the walls. Our little apartment was cute and cozy, but something wasn't right. The fact that he never got me a ring, any kind of ring at all, bothered me. Maybe the night his brother and fiancé showed up at our apartment, flashing a big, expensive engagement ring, 
I had a hard time hiding how slighted I felt. Maybe I said a few things that I later regretted, like calling him out in front of our dinner guests for cheating me out of the ring experience. And maybe I asked him if he had any money in savings. I was hurt and scared and worried and stressed out. So much was changing so quickly, and everything I'd envisioned for myself was being challenged. I deserved a ring, right? I would have settled for a plastic ring from a vending machine. Just put a ring on it, dude. The day before our wedding, I was at work when Chris called. It seemed that his brother had gone home crying to their parents about what a mistake Chris was making, and he was postponing the wedding until later in the summer. It was what Floyd, the counselor my future in-laws had sent us to, felt was best. I spent the rest of the afternoon calling every person we'd invited to tell them that the wedding was being postponed. When is the new date? Why? What happened? They asked. I don't know, was all I could say through tears. I lost my job and apartment. I returned as many gifts as I could. Chris's mom sent her family and friends a consolation potted plant. Gross. I spent the next few weeks at my ex-boyfriend's apartment with a bong in my hand, watching our drummer play, our drummer friend play Parappa the Rapper. I tried to call Chris occasionally, but his mother told me that Floyd felt it was best if we didn't talk. I didn't give a damn what Floyd said. My life was in limbo, and I needed answers. Eventually, he was allowed to talk to me again. The wedding was still postponed, but we were hanging out. It's hard to go back to dating once you're supposed to be married. We received tickets to see my favorite band in concert. I cried during the first 45 minutes of the show because I couldn't believe I was experiencing this very special life event next to the person who had torn my world apart. I was starting to see that he wasn't going to marry me. He just wouldn't admit it. Two months later, school started again. Chris came to visit one night. We were at a local club where they were holding a swing dance class. He wanted to try it out, but I wasn't feeling too enthusiastic about it. Swing wasn't my thing. He stormed out of the club and I followed. On a bench in the middle of town, Murfreesboro, <laughs> he broke up with me. He didn't want to spend another minute with a person who wouldn't try swing dancing, who was scared of roller coasters, who fell asleep when he tried to show her Father Ted, and who had still not watched Twin Peaks, <laughs> which I've remedied, by the way. The next time I saw him was the following spring. I asked him to come by one weekend when I was at my parents' house. He was seeing someone he met at work. He insisted that there must be someone I was interested in. Sheepishly, I told him that there was. He said, you're going to marry that guy. And for the record, he was right. I did marry that guy. It was going to be the last time I would see him as he was moving to Australia with a Fulbright scholarship to work as a cartoonist. These days, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that he cured me of my attraction to the sensitive artistic type. I'm thankful that I will not grow old being called gorgeous. <laughs> Most of all, I'm thankful that the summer of Chris also happened to be the summer that Seinfeld ended. As I introduce my children to my favorite show of all time, I have a fabulous story to tell them about how I almost married some hipster doofus who took me to the world's largest Seinfeld farewell party. And for a while, my life was a lot like an episode of Seinfeld. Luckily, I was saved from marrying this idiot when I was way too young. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I have serenity now, and I'm back, baby. Although I'd be lying if I didn't admit that I occasionally fantasize about inviting him to a celebration of Festivus for an airing of grievances. I'd start by telling him that the jerk store called. Thank you. Mandy Ray Jones, give her one round of applause.
All right, are you guys ready for your final story of the afternoon, evening, whatever this is? Um, are you ready? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't hear any noise. Ah. <laughs> Make some noise. Okay, so uh, these next two wonderful people who I just adore. Um, Patsy is a nationally recognized storyteller. She's a descendant of two feuding families, the Green-Jones feud and the Hatfield-McCoy feud. Uh, Herman is a, that's for real, it's not a movie, on Lifetime. Okay, Herman Lawson is a longtime storyteller in the rich tradition of East Tennessee. He grew up as a farm boy in Appalachia. Um, please welcome to the stage uh, Patsy and Herman Lawson. Looking back now, I can see why we married each other. It was basically a business proposition around how we saw our futures. Since both of us grew up in Sneedville, a very isolated part of East Tennessee, we both dreamed of a world outside our raising. My two goals for marriage were sex and travel. <laughs> Herman's was sex and he was open to the rest <laughs> and that was good enough for me I now know that if he had backed out on the travel I would have given up the sex and moved on to the next guy that had a suitcase <laughs> so we had already planned to travel with kids, without kids, it didn't matter we had rarely been out of East Tennessee, so we both had a big world to see, ASAP. At that point, we had not realized that travel to the rest of the world cost money, but it hit soon enough. As our careers began, we tried to put away money for next summer's trip, and by the time the first son arrived four years later, we had enough money to begin our journeys, as small scale as they were. With our limited money, we still had to negotiate the place to visit before summer arrived. Sometimes his ideas won, sometimes mine. If I had to be truly honest, I would have to tell you that Herman's entire life has revolved around big dreams, or what my mama called hay-faced, excited plans. <laughs> and like most of loves, me not included, he goes deep into the experience of his most current interest. By this I mean he buys books, posters, artwork, watches films, buys statue of the current interest, and reads extensively. First, there was the baseball period. Next came the historic period the religious period, the Willie Nelson period, and last but not least, the politics period. However, none of these outshined his Native American period. This was the big. I have always loved... I have always loved Native American mythology and religion. I especially like the beliefs of the Sioux, ghost dances, sweat lodges, coming-of-age vision quests. We were planning a grand western trip and wanted to see the Grand Canyon, both north and south rims, and other magnificent sights of the west. 
I found an ad in one of those magazines, travel magazines, that said, Stay at Exotic Pot Temp, Native American Ceremonial Pool, Rich Native Traditions, Ancient Foods Prepared by Shaman. I said to myself, This seems right up Herman's Alley. I'll surprise him and add in a night there. So I secretly booked it and guaranteed it with our credit card. She thought she was keeping it a secret, but I knew because I found some of the paperwork lying around. For a while, I just didn't let her know that I knew. Lucky fingers. <laughs> but I was thinking about it all the time. As our journey began, we first went to the Grand Canyon's South Rim. It was desolate and majestic. We took many photographs. Park guides included in their talks the relevance of the canyon to Native Americans. I could imagine myself doing a vision quest there. <laughs> I could sense the spirituality and the animal and nature sounds. I envisioned a true communion with nature and Native American spirituality. And it would be all topped off with an exotic stay with a true shaman, Native American foods, and just maybe I would get lucky and have a vision of my own. This was going to be the most authentic vacation we had ever taken. With both of us being college professors, I was already planning the cultural lecture I could give at the College for Air Diversity Week when I got back home. It was around this time that I let Pat know that I knew about Pa Temp. I could stay quiet no longer. She was a little irked with me, but mostly she was glad that I was happy and anticipating it. She was doing this for me since I had done similar things for her, but she did not share in my excitement, vision, or planned cultural lecture. She basically gave me patronizing looks when I talked about visions and spirituality. She seemed to totally ignore my monologues. <laughs> the North Rim was verdant with flowers and grasses. Again, another gazillion photographs. Herman had me stopping every five minutes to take a picture of a flower, some damn rocks, and things that he believed to have magical powers. The man was headed toward the deep end. Herman even seemed to be seeing mystic imageries in every living object, animal, and in certain animal feces. Here he mentioned that it was worth noticing the particular shape, color, and position of these animal droppings. It was really hard to choke back my laughter with this last one. Then we paid a visit to the Navajo and Hopi reservations. The Hopi reservation is inside the Navajo reservation. The Hopi especially took him to a deeper level of awareness, or as I call it, imagination. <laughs> There were tall mesas. We were given a kachina doll, which looked something like my daddy would have whittled from wood and painted. Supposedly, these dolls have mystical powers. So I thought to myself, 
The only thing mystical about this is Herman's and Herman and his delusions. Herman's climax came when he saw the young Native Americans doing their butterfly dances. God, I just prayed that he would not suddenly throw off his clothes and decided to join them in this ritual. When we finally left the village and the mesa, Herman launched into his fantasy about how Pa Temp would be the perfect ending for this day. I certainly did. <laughs> I felt that at Pa Temp, I would truly discover for myself the meaning of ghost dances, sweat lodges, and vision quests. I felt I would discover the meaning of other dances, discover religious secrets, see God in nature the way natives do. Herman was a goner. I had seen these same behaviors in small rural churches, during revivals, and on TV with evangelists, but this was a side of Herman I had never seen. Finally, we arrived at Patel. Surprisingly, the sign out front was small and unappealing. A bit unexpected, but to me it just meant this place had been visited a lot. We parked our car in the designated parking spot and started walking toward the facility. The smell was putrid. <laughs> I satisfied myself that Maybe this was a smell of Native American herbs and foods. <laughs> but they might not smell well, but were beneficial nonetheless. We came around the corner. I started losing my hopes and beliefs at this point. There were many, many weeds. And there it was, an old swimming pool straight out of the 1940s, all broken and full of stagnant, dirty water. This was not the sulfur water, which is stinky but has miraculous powers. This was just stagnant sewer backup water. We talked to the owners of the facility, a man and a woman. They both looked like East Tennessee mountain folks who had spent too much time on the mountain or on the weed. The man was gruff. Neither of them were friendly or forthcoming. They did not refer to any Native American artifacts or aspects of the property. We asked some questions about the advertising. The man said, Well, some of my Native friends call me a type of shaman, and I reckon a few people got well in that stinky pool. If you want more than this, you can go somewhere else, I guess. But I done got your credit card. At this point... I decided that I would divorce Herman just as soon as I could. <laughs> Perhaps I would just leave him here to discover on his own mystical aspects of the fine resort. If you hadn't guessed it, Patsy was getting angry. <laughs> I was just depressed, unbelieving. I looked around. Their home was as dilapidated as the pool. Part clapboard and part brick. They showed us to our room in a separate, similarly dilapidated house. For this I was thankful because at least we would not have to be in the same house with these weirdos. 
The walls were stark and the bed was broken down in the middle. Pat and I sat in our room and talked. She mostly yelled. <laughs> I won't tell you what she said about shaman or my spiritual quest, but even in East Tennessee terms, it was a shocker. <laughs> she demanded that we confront the owners. I said they've already got our credit card. She said we should stand up for ourselves. I argued that we should just take our lunch. At this point, she grabbed the car keys, got in the car, and drove off. As it turns out, this would be the first of two times on this vacation that she would drive off leaving me stranded. <laughs> the other one came the following week in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, because that's another story. Being the calmer of the two of us, I remained in the room trying to figure my way out of this mess. Dark came. I sat on the bed and did some deep thinking, which I should have done earlier, and then I fell asleep. I suppose this, too, was a Native American coping ritual for tough times. After about an hour, she returns, and we try to talk out this mess. But we just got, of course, back into arguing so fiercely that we took everything out on each other. We took away each other's power. We did nothing. We tried to sleep on the opposite ends of the broken down bed, turned in opposite directions from each other, which meant that her feet were in my face and my feet were in her face. <laughs> Perhaps this too was another Native American ritual. I thought that breakfast might turn everything around. I said, nothing will turn this situation around. You go to breakfast if you want to. I'm not going. <laughs> I showed up for breakfast. She was right. I was served only a dirty hoe cake without any syrup and with no taste at all. <laughs> we later found out that the local city was in the process of condemning Potem. The couple had been violating zoning laws for years. We didn't talk much to each other for a full two days. Then we saw the side of the Battle of Little Bighorn. We could sense in the air the soldiers being slaughtered by the Native Americans. We could identify. Only we hadn't lost a sitting bull and crazy horse. We had just lost the Battle of Potemp to the legions of Chief Flimplammer. <laughs> and we hadn't put up much of a fight except with each other. By the way, many years later, I did get to experience a Native American sweat. Herman and Patsy Lawson. I don't know which one of them has the cooler accent. Herman seems like he'd be fun to party with, though. He's all like open minded and like he's ready for Burning Man. Very open minded. I'm going to start calling Patsy Pat. So I was Pat. Um, they have Patsy has this amazing story also about how they went to um, <laughs> this like community center aerobics class and somehow Herman accidentally locked her in the car before they went in and uh, so he does the whole aerobics class and by the way it's what in the summer when this happens so it's hot she can't get out of the car from the inside. She's locked in the car and Herman comes out at the end of the aerobics class like why didn't you come to class? 
He's like, I was locked in the car. Um, and then did you make him go in and, and uh, I, I recreate the experience for him? Uh, yes. I said, get me out of this car. <laughs> As soon as you can, and you got me out, and I said, get in. <laughs> I said, what? I said, get in. I said, get in. I want you to experience this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And you're the second person who's been trapped in their own car. Chris, weren't you trapped in your car as well? At one no, point? my mom was. Oh, I thought last year you got trapped in your car. You really got locked in your car. There was a, I remember seeing something on Facebook. Or that was your mom? Might have been me. I don't know. You can do so many goofy things. Sounds like something I would do. I think it was with the Xterra. Um, Anyways. uh, Yeah, you're right. I did. You did. How did you forget that? I remember. It was in the winter. It was so traumatic. It was so traumatic. It was PTSD. Uh, Well, we're glad you made it, Chris. Uh, Obviously, some brain cells were lost in that crowd. Um, But, anyways, uh, big round of applause for all of our storytellers here tonight. For all of you, thank you so much for coming and supporting live storytelling, and I hope you come back for the All Guys Show. Now you heard, go spread the word. They're funny, smart, and so absurd. Happens every month. It's the neatest storytelling at its sweetest.